So we're in a crisis of leadership. Um, I'm not making political comment here, but it's the first time in my life, and I'm 63, that a, a British Prime Minister has been sanctioned for lying to Parliament. I've never known an ex-American president facing multiple court cases. Whether they're politically motivated or not depends on how you see things. But again, I've not known an American president being sanctioned by, uh, for, for inciting a riot on the Capitol building. But not just in the area of politics, in the area of, of life and business. Uh, Gallup uh, had a survey that they did uh, just in April, actually, and they asked people, what do you feel about the leadership in your organization, in, in the marketplace where you work? And 79% said they had little or no confidence in their leaders. So if you're a leader in the marketplace, maybe your workers think that. But, but that is, that's shocking. I, I don't know what it would have been when I was younger, but we used to respect leaders, and we used to uh, expect an integrity from leaders, and we expected things. And, and, it's, and it's been shocking how things have changed. And uh, the CBI, uh, the, the, the Confederation of British Industry that speaks for, for British business, uh, had a series of uh, scandals, uh, uh, sexual abuse, and, uh, uh, and even rape. And they said, we failed to weed out toxic leadership in our organization. And actually, right across the spectrum, that leadership is, it, integrity is under challenge. And, and, uh, and I'd be a liar to say that actually that's not touched the church. You know, from Seattle to, to Watford. We, we read about in the papers that we read of, of leaders, of men, who we, we couldn't believe that they've fallen. And, and it makes people think, I don't want to be a leader. It makes me think the pressure of a leader, the, the stress of being a leader. Nobody trusts me. I can't, the leadership models are not there. I, 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 you know, the, the, the situations of leaders falling, and I just don't want to be a leader. And that, in one sense, is at the front of, of the leadership crisis. But I think there's, there's something deeper than that, and there's something more subtle than that that's going on, and, and that's been adrift as we go through uh, the postmodern ages. I don't know whether you call that now. Uh, Andrew's away. He'd, he'd correct me if I was, I was wrong. But, but the, the, there's a crisis of commitment. There's this crisis of commitment. We, we, we don't want to commit uh, there was a survey done in The Guardian just a few weeks ago that says, actually, the, the Gen Xs, and it's great to see loads of babies and loads of moms. I mean, you have really grown up. You, do you know, like, when you see, you see, you see a friend, and then, they, and then they're, they're young, and then they come back, and they've grown. I mean, you've grown in numbers. I mean, there's babies everywhere. When I first came to this church, there were no babies. You know, there was no gray-haired people. It was like everybody was 20 and cool, and now you're all like, yeah, baby. <laughs> you know, so you've, <laughs> you've, really, you've really grown. Uh, uh, and, but the, the, the survey in The Guardian said that Gen X people want fun and experience. They want to be free from binding obligations. And so when you talk about leadership, leadership doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like a great experience. You know, occasionally, you know, a pastor might say, I flew to Cape Town and ministered there. And you think, well, I fancy that. But most of the time, it doesn't sound like fun. It sounds like obligation. And so we have this crisis of commitment. Mark Sayers, who's a brilliant and prophetic voice into the church, guy from Australia, uh, numerous books he's written. He says this, a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice has disappeared. Commitment, resilience, and sacrifice has disappeared amongst many Western believers. Not this church, I hope. 
In its place is a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction uh, is emerging. A new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and insatiable consumerism. We want church to deliver for us. We want church to be something that we can come to and it delivers. But actually, we, we don't want the obligation that, that Jeremy carries or, 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 or a number of you carry as small group leaders or whatever. We don't want that obligation. And I want to challenge that. And I think that... Actually, I, I've got another quote. I mean, there's full of quotes. I love quotes. Uh, so if you don't like quotes, I'm really sorry. Um, Bill, Bill, Bill Hull, talking about discipleship in the church, says the Western church is weak, self-indulgent and superficial. It's been thoroughly discipled by its culture. Regardless of our nodding assent to the importance of Christian maturity, our passions lay elsewhere. We've sacrificed the poured-out life of a disciple or a leader on the altar of shallow personal achievements and self-gratification. Personal achievements are not wrong. Don't hear that. Personal achievements are not wrong. But actually, the choices we've made has meant that actually we'd rather do that than serve God's church. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everybody should join the staff of this church. I'm not saying that. And so what I felt as I was wrestling with this was I wanted to have one kind of idea. Almost, you know, my typical sermon is like a, a, main, a starter, a main course, and a dessert, you know. But actually, this is more like a tapas sermon. You know, there'll be some bits that you like and some bits you don't like. It's a bit more like a bit of a blog, you know, when people say 10 leadership lessons. Actually, I had 11, and my colleague said, you can have 10, 10 commandments, or 12, 12 disciples. You can't have 11. <laughs> so we got 11. We got 10, okay? And I want to talk about 10 leadership lessons from this passage that apply to us all. 10 leadership lessons that apply to us all. So if you're not a leader, it still applies to you. And I'm not going to, every time I say leader, I'm not going to say, and that applies to you. And every time I talk about an everyday Christian, I'm not going to say, and that applies to leaders too. Do you, have you got that? You got that? We're talking about every, all of us. So this, this uh, uh, speech in Acts is the only, uh, uh, only speech, there's loads of speeches in Acts, it's the only speech in Acts that... that that speaks to Christians. Every other one speaks to Jews and Gentiles and God-fearers and Greeks and whatever, but, but this one speaks to Christians, and it speaks to a particular group of Christians. Paul has planted the church, and you've been reading you've, in your series about Ephesus, Paul planted the church in Ephesus, and you know there's been riots and Alexander and the, Alexander the silversmith and all this kind of stuff. Paul has planted this church, and he's, he's lived with them for three years, and now God, the Holy Spirit's moving him on to, to Jerusalem, and he feels like, I can't go past this church where I've spent my life without having a chat to the leaders. Now, we don't know how many elders they were. I suspect Timothy, whose, whose letters in the Bible Paul writes to Timothy, I suspect he's amongst the crowd. We don't know how big the church is or how many elders there were. But this is kind of like an inside huddle. You know, you need to do sports. It's the inside huddle. I'm, just, I'm about to go, and I'm going to tell you some lessons. So the first lesson is gospel leaders and Jesus followers are chosen, motivated, and directed by the Holy Spirit. So let's just pick out some verses. Acts uh, 22, Paul says, Now I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. In every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship face me. Paul was a man that the Holy Spirit got hold of. You probably, probably can't remember right back in the series, the, the Damascus Road. But, but, but God got hold of Paul. 
Paul had other ideas and other things. In fact, he was anti-church. And God got hold of him. The Holy Spirit got hold of him and said, I want you to do this for me. And he understood, therefore, that the voice of the Holy Spirit in choosing him and directing him and compelling was, was absolutely critical. But he also says that it's critical for everyone in the church, particularly leaders. He says, keep watch over yourself and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, when we think about our involvement with church, whether leader or follower, I'll keep doing it, whether leader or follower, we can think that we offer our time. We think that we, we give our, our energy and our moments, like, oh yeah, I'll be involved in that, I'll serve in that welcome team, I'll do that, or I'll do that, and, and we think we're doing that. But the reality is, no, you do not belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You actually are bought by the blood of Jesus. You didn't choose to be a follower of Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus. He chose you. You don't sound surprised. Great, you're obviously well taught. But that changes everything fundamentally because it doesn't mean that you can just buy in willy-nilly to the things of God. Oh, but actually, no, he chose you and he bought you with his precious blood. You're not just a sidebar volunteer. Well, I'll go to church. No, I won't go to church. I'll be involved. I won't be involved. He's bought you with his precious blood. He's poured his Holy Spirit on you and you belong to him. Thank you. I'm full of challenge, I'm sorry. I love you loads, but I'm going to keep challenging you. Mark Sayers, again, we live in spectator culture in which citizens are reduced to passive observers and self-centered consumers. We fear committing, worrying that by doing so we reduce our freedom, cutting ourselves off from a myriad of choices that entice us everywhere. Yet leaders do not choose Rather, they respond to God choosing them. Let's say that again. Leaders. It's, and it's same for followers. Yeah, you got that bit. Yeah? With, with leaders, do not choose. Rather, they respond to God choosing them. This is the first responsive step of leadership or following Jesus. is of utmost importance. It's an act of rebellion. I love that. Against the passive, self-centered life of our spectator culture. It's to relinquish your life of so many options so you can receive God's one option. So if you're a leader in the marketplace, great. But you are first and foremost a chosen, directed, compelled follower of Jesus. Amen? It's going to cost you to follow Jesus just like it costs you to follow Paul. And I want to say that it costs to be a leader. But Paul says later to Timothy, who was probably hearing hearing it in the crowd, he says this, This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, a.k.a. elder, a.k.a. shepherd, or just even general leadership, he desires a good work. I think sometimes we're so unwilling to say, I feel called to lead in God's church. You know, if you go tell Jeremy and Anne, I feel called to lead. Oh, well, he's a pushy so-and-so. You know, he wants the platform. What, what's his problem? You know, he's, he's got, he wants to get his voice. And, you know, he'd like, no. Paul says to Timothy, if you want to do this, it's a good thing. So if you want to lead in God's church, it's a good thing. You should be putting your hand up and say, pick me. Because God has already picked you. Don't worry that you're like, Oh no, what about my motivations? A friend of mine called Paul Reed said, motivations are a dirty pool, don't fish there. 
You're going to find an old bicycle, aren't you, that's self in, oh, you know, I want my church to be big. I want people to love me. I want people to think I'm amazing. I, I've, you know, that's in my pool, and I've been doing this for 25 years. But the bottom line is, God has called me and compelled me, and he's doing the same for some of you. Thank you. You can clap, Jeremy. <laughs> Every time Jeremy claps, it's 10 pounds. <laughs> we'll get on to our greed in, in one. Okay, so each one could be a sermon. Point two. That was good. You get that? Chosen. You're not your own. You're his. Second one, gospel leaders and Jesus followers don't shrink back from declaring God's truth. Uh, do you love the Bible? I've got a Bible. Thanks for having Bibles at the back. I left mine at home. Do you love God's truth? Okay, I'm not going to carry on if you don't answer. You love God's truth. This book is the story of your life. You're you're not living your life and interjecting God's story occasionally on a Sunday morning. This is the story of the universe and you are in this story. And you need to love this word. And you need to let it shape you. Paul says this. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring anything that was beneficial to you. You need to thank Jeremy and Andrew and me when we preach and say, thank you, that was beneficial because we want it to do you good. We want it to be profitable and transformational. He says, I taught you publicly like preaching and from house to house. Publicly, not many of you are going to be preachers. But all of you live in a house, don't you? And you can do gospel from house to house, from workplace to workplace. And you know, it's not just the job of Jeremy on the salt course to tell you about how, to, how the, the, the Bible clashes with culture. And you think, well, that was a great course, wasn't it? You need to live that every day. When, we were just, when we, our kids were young, they'd say, what about this? I'm not going to mention it because you, it's everything you mention these days is controversial. What about this issue in culture or what about that in, issue in culture? And we had to tell them, this is what the Bible says. And this is why the Bible's way is best. This is why the Bible's way is best for marriage and sexuality. This is why the Bible's best for authority. This is why the Bible's best. And you need to be able to say that in your water cooler moment when you're standing on a Monday and you're talking about, did you see that in the paper? You better have a three-minute answer why the gospel's true. Don't shrink back. Thank you, Ruth. That's, you don't need to pay. It's not just for here. It's house to house and publicly. I didn't shrink back. Let's not shrink back, guys. Let's love the word. This post-Christian culture, you know, there are stuff in it that's, that's, a, that's, that's from Jesus, you know, freedom and kindness and progress and equality. Where does that come from? Read Grant Scrivener's book, There We Breathe. That comes from Jesus. There's so much in our culture that we can say, yes, that comes from Jesus. And the stuff that we've got to say, no, that doesn't come from Jesus. Let's not shrink back, but let's be clear. What we need, leaders and churches are not merely an echo to the culture. You know, when I'm writing my sermon, I don't go and get a little focus group and say, is this going to offend people? What are people going to think about this? I'm, I'm letting the word of God dwell in me richly, and I'm, and I'm saying it to you. I'm careful what I say, because we rent a public space, and so do you. But let's not shrink back. Amen? What was that point? I can't remember. Gospel leaders and followers don't shrink back from declaring God's truth. Okay? That's all of you. Some of you might find that as you're reading your Bible and studying, God is stirring you and you think, man, I've got, I want to teach this. I want to teach this. You can teach one another. 
You can care for one another. You can share the Bible with one another. It's not like there's just one teacher or two teachers in this church. We want to teach one another, encourage, admonish one another. You can handle the scripture, but some of you might be finding there's a preaching gift emerging in me. Where's the space? I remember saying to Naomi's father, he led a church, oh, I'd like, I feel called and stirred to preach. He said, well, you're not having my pulpit. I said, oh, that's not very nice, is it? He said, go and plant your own church. So I did. You know, God is going to use you to speak. And if you want to speak, then find your voice. Three. That was tappers number two. Number three. Gospel leaders and followers are known by their community of faith. If you think, well, yeah, I know that leaders handle the word. This is almost like the other end. Paul says in Thessalonians, he says, I didn't only share the gospel with you. Do you know the, do you know the verse, anyone? But also my life. No, you don't know it, but you do now, Jotham. He's just shaking his head. Paul's not an ivory tower guy. He's not like a consultant that flies in, says what he says, and goes away. He's not like some academic from the university who's writing books and occasionally pops into local church. And you might think, well, he's a bright guy. He could have easily done that. No, he lives amongst you. This is what it says, uh, 18, part B. It says, you know how I lived. You know how I lived. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came. Was you know who he was. He wasn't like separate. He's in with the people. The people in that church, it was like some woman who's washing purple, and he's down by the river talking to that woman. She becomes part of the church. There's some uh, different people. That, is that Philippi? That's Philippi. Okay, it's not Ephesus, but you get the idea. But, you know, everybody in that church Paul has spoken to and discipled, he didn't like go to Bible, I'm not against Bible college, he didn't go to Bible college, it wasn't a Bible college, he didn't go to Bible college to say, where's my next leader coming from? His next leader came from the marketplace, from some street trader, from some guy who'd been in, and he said, right, I'm going to train you up and to be the elders. And he spent three years and there they were. And they knew him. He says, you know yourselves, verse 34, what these hands of mine have supplied. He says, in everything I did, I showed you. You know, it's a dangerous fiction to think that leaders are some sort of superheroes that live in this other bubble, that they're different from you. They're not. They are different and they handle the word, but they're, they're the same. They're the same as you. You know, they, they have the same struggles and the same challenges. And you need to know that. If you're shocked when your leader says, yeah, I'm feeling a bit down. Think, oh, I lost my faith now. That's no good, is it? Your faith isn't in Andrew and Jeremy, although we trust them and honor them. It's in, it's in Jesus. You know, it, it's, leaders are not superheroes. One of the times, if a leader tells you he's a superhero, he's just be worried, okay? Because he probably wants to control you. He probably wants to tell you, I'm a superhero, do exactly what I say. But actually, Paul isn't that. He's saying, you know, I, I'm the worst of Jesus followers. I'm, I'm in fear and trembling. And, he, and they know him. Amen. It's really important to know him. This is one of my favorite quotes. Paul Tripp. I've now come to understand that I need others in my life. I, need, I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intensive, or, sorry, in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. It's hard to read, but what a great sentence. I know now that my, it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversations and say things to myself I couldn't, I wouldn't even say to myself. 
You need people that know you and say, you know, I've just observed you being like this. Or do you know when you did that? Who can speak to you? Who can challenge you? You need someone to do that. You know, I find in our church, if I want to go over and say, I've just observed the way you do this, maybe about parenting or maybe about this or that. Whoa, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, no, we need to be known and vulnerable. I've made it my pattern over my life to be in, in an accountable relationship with, with three people. Uh, uh, I call them threes. And like, they're not like all just the elders. They're just like some guys from the church. And I tell them, like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my marriage today. Or my money or, or my kids. Or I'm feeling down or whatever. And they pray for me. And they don't fall apart. They understand that we need to be known. And you need to be known. It's not just enough to just attend. You need to be in community. You need to be known. Amen? Number four. Quick, I better go quick. I can say each one's a sermon. Number four. Gospel leaders and followers guard their hearts and keep watch over themselves. There are bits of your heart that other people can see that you can't see and you need them to tell you. Do you know how you just were really grumpy when you did that? You know, I've had people come up to me in church and say, I just want a Matthew 18 with you because you've just, you were really, do you know what Matthew 18 is? If you don't know, it basically means if someone sins against you, go and tell them. You don't ring the elders, Andrew, somebody said horrible, something horrible to me, can you go down and see them? No, you say, some, and I've had that, I've said, look, that goes across the church. People have come and said, you know that Sunday morning when you had game face on and you're putting out the chairs, you were horrible to me. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I've, I've gone to people and said, you know, sometimes when you were putting out the chairs and being grumpy and whatever, that was really... And, you know, we, want, we need to be able to do that. People need to, be, we need to be able to point out those things that we see. But there's also those things in our hearts that we don't let anyone see. And we've got to guard that. Acts 28, 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves. So a leader is not just keeping watch over the flock. They're keeping watch over themselves. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to keep watch over yourself. You don't just let, let your life drift here and there. Somebody better tell you, or you better keep watch over yourself, guard your heart, otherwise you're going to end up in a mess. You know, come on. You've been hearing about, uh, about um, idolatry. Kathy Keller uh, says this. It's a great quote. It says, pull up your desires by the roots. And sometimes you'll find your idols clinging to them. How do you know what your heart's going after? Sometimes you pull up the thing that I really want. I mean, Tim Keller's, he wrote wonderfully, you know, the way that we know if we've got an idol is if something's got hold of our heart that if it was taken away, we'd be done. If that job, that career was taken away, I'd be lost. If that relationship was taken away, I'd be lost. If that was taken away, that can become a subtle idol in your heart. It's a way to know what's going inside your heart. Greg Beale, whose, whose titles, chapters in his book are usually longer than books, says this, he says, if you don't know Greg Beale, that's not funny. Um, <laughs> so clearly it's not funny. Um, it says, we become what our hearts worship. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. You will become what you're passionate about. What, and actually, do you know in the Bible it says, it says a lot of times, you've become a stiff-necked people. Have you read that? And you think, what's God talking about? Stiff-necked people? They've been out cold weather. What's the matter? Why are they? Because actually, they worship the golden calf and that had a stiff neck. You become 
like what you worship. If, you're, if, the very, if things that have got in your heart, that you love them so deeply, that really you worship success. In leadership or in life, you're not going to tell people your vulnerabilities. And it's got in there. And you worship, if you worship this sense of, of purpose, and you think, that's got in there, you'll resemble that. Everything will be kicked away. People will be walked over. You, because it's got in your heart. So we, guys, we've got to guard our hearts. Amen? Okay, it's not as exciting as the first two, but never mind, you live with it. Number five, gospel leaders and Jesus followers are not greedy or grasping. The first sin in the Bible was a grasping sin, wasn't it? Here's the, here's the fruit, whether, whatever you believe about that in, in, in terms of... But, but there's a sense where that is reserved for God. I want to be like God. I want to be my own God. I want to run my own world, lead my own life. And humanity took and grasped and ate and said, I want autonomy. I want independence from God. And that's the nature of human sin, that we're this black hole, that we're, we're curved in on ourselves, and we say, give me this, and give me this, and give me this, and I'll be satisfied. You know, but it says, doesn't it, right at the beginning, it says, their eyes were opened, and they realized, it's a sham. It hasn't delivered. And Paul makes it really clear to the Ephesian elders the idol of money, the grasping idol of money has got no place in his heart. It says, for I've not coveted. Are you coveted? I drive around Cheltenham, some lovely houses. Oh, Lord, give me that house. No, sorry. <laughs> so I've got a nice car. Give me a better car, Lord, please. I've had a nice holiday. Give me a better holiday. Paul says, I'm not coveted. Wow. You know, some people, that, uh, one writer says, thou shalt not covet, sums up the whole of the Ten Commandments. Because it's saying, I'd rather have that than God. That'll make me happy, not him. It says, I'm not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and, my, and the needs of my companions. He's a tent maker. Paul's not full-time in the church. Whoa. He's in the marketplace. Literally, he's in the marketplace. Doing his thing in the marketplace, running a business, feeding his, com- uh, his companions. But he's not saying, look, there's no entitlement here. Everything I did, I showed that by this very hard work, you must help the weak. Remembering the words of Jesus, which actually Jesus never actually said this. It's a summary, I think, Paul's summary of, of it. He says, it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul, Roman culture was reciprocal. I give you this and you give me that. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I give you this position of power, you return me and give me a position of power. That's how, that's how culture was before a man called Jesus came. But if you work across the road here, down the light, in the city, is it, is, I don't know, I, don't, I used to work in a school. It is a bit like that in a school, but you know, the, it, this sense where you, I'll give you this to give you that. I'll give you this to give you that. Because actually it's all about building ourselves. And, and Paul says, I'm not having any of that. I'm not having grasping, I'm not having greed, it's more blessed to give than receive. Um, we hear, didn't we, Jeremy read it from two Philippians, he said, Jesus, being very nature God, that means he's equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. 
No, he's not grasping and after stuff. He's not after, after. You can trust him with your life and you can let go of your money. Give it away. A couple of quotes on money. This, this one, the, the, the end of this quote is a little bit hyperbole, but we'll let you off. Rob McCracken says this. Get to know two things about a person, how they earn their money and how they spend it. Then you will have a clue about their character. You'll have a searchlight that shows you the inner recesses of the soul. You'll know, you'll know all that you need to know about their holiness, their motives, their driving desires, and their real religion. I don't think you'll find all that you need to know, so I think he's slightly overstating it. But your bank balance does tell something. So my bank balance says, I love my mortgage, I love my house this much, and I love Jesus this much, and I love my golf membership this much, and I love my TV subscriptions this much. Is that fair? I may say, oh, it's mortgage, it don't count. Yeah, but every time the guys in my church is like, oh, we're going to extend the back and put bifold doors on, and you know, I won't be at church for three or four weeks because I'm doing it in my kitchen. The bank balance tells the story of their life. I mean, sometimes my bank balance says that I love my holidays more than Jesus. Sometimes it says I love my car more than Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can't have holidays or cars, but if, if Jesus is always way down... What does it say about what's really important? What does it say about your life? Money can be a stumbling block for leaders. Now, that, I'm not, that doesn't mean keep your leaders poor. They used to say in the Baptist church, pay them really badly and it'll keep them humble. <laughs> no. And then the Pentecostal church says, bless them, bless them, bless them, and they'll be really humble. No. Although, actually, I prefer the second one. No. Money's a stumbling block for you, and it's a stumbling block for leaders. And it's a stumbling block because you, John Wesley says, the last thing to get saved, John Wesley, the founder of the Message Church, the last thing to get saved is your wallet. Tim Keller, oh, thank Jesus for Tim Keller. He says this, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace. That's what Jeremy read at the beginning. Until it changes you into a generous person. For many, the measure of our attitude to money is the tithe. Give away 10% to God's work. For most of us, 10% will require a sacrifice. It will be hard. 10% will mean there's a cross in our financial life. There's a cross in our financial life. But for many, 10% won't require sacrifice. The reality is 10% isn't the standard. The cross is the standard. The cross is the standard. If Jesus was tithing his blood, I love Tim Keller, so insightful. If Jesus was tithing his blood, you'd still be lost. Jesus went way past the tithe. If Jesus is your treasure, you will be giving your money away joyfully, gladly, sacrificially. Pass the buckets. No. Leaders are not greedy and grasping. Six. Gospel leaders serve with humility. We, we, I quoted it already, uh, Philippians 2, that he did not consider equality to God something to be grasped or using his advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Gospel leaders serve with humility. I think when I preached here last, I preached... Jesus, when he tells you what's really in his heart, says the Son of Man is gentle 
and lowly. Not for Jesus, the puffed-up stage and poster boy. Not for Jesus, the high-profile, high-status. Oh, I'll give you all the kings of the world if you bow down and worship me. No, thank you. I'm going to go to the cross now, says Peter. Because Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart. And, and if you're a Jesus follower, that should be you. So wave if you've got one of the badges that says, I, I'm here to serve. I see that lady there. Put your, wave your hand, please. I'm here to serve. Okay. Thank you so much. Let's clap them. Okay. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Do you know what I'm going to say? Does anyone want to guess? Zach, I'd like to make badges for the whole church, okay? I am here to serve. Yeah? Do you got that? I am here to serve. No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm far too busy. You don't know, I've got three kids at home. Don't ask me to serve. I'm in this busy job. Don't ask me to serve. Do you know what's going on in my life? Don't ask me to serve. In fact, I'd just like to come. Don't ask me to serve. I give my money. Don't ask me to serve. We're here to serve. We're here to serve. It's, I, I find it so frustrating when people think, I'm here to serve. I am here to serve. I mean, I remember in a big church in, in Cheltenham, it was probably 1,500 at the time, and, and we, Naomi and I had gone to a meeting, and, and everybody was chatting at the back. And this guy, the pastor, was stacking the chairs. And I said, Mark, it's great you're stacking the chairs. I said, where's your people? He said, oh, they pay me, don't they? So I said to the little church plant of ours, there were six or seven of us, because we were used to stacking chairs, I said, come on, guys, let's help him. Yeah? That's not because he should, he's, not, he's above stacking chairs. But you're certainly not above stacking chairs, are you? Everyone would be fighting to stack chairs now. It's just an illustration, okay? It says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. I'm going to name check my boy. I was sent on a really lovely video after the weekend away. How's time going? Flip me, I'm going long. Um, they sent a lovely video after the weekend away. Zach had done all the... Th- Zach had done all the things he did, and Jeremy got and said, oh, thank you that I'm serving. And he stood there, didn't he? he like, <laughs> and I thought, that's my boy. We're here to serve. He doesn't serve because he's paid. They, thank you. He serves because that's what Jesus is like. uh, Daniel Yankovic, old quote, old rules stress duty to others. The importance of self-denial that used to be assumed in Western societies, um, especially duty to family and nation, obviously people not sacrificial all the time, but it's embarrassing to be seen as selfish because the prevailing ethic was self-denial. That came from Christ. That came from a little bit of Christendom. He says, now the new rules are being replaced by duty to self, in which the primary responsibility is our own self-fulfillment. Everyone else must fit around that priority. No, leaders serve. When Jesus had finished washing the feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher. Didn't shrink back from teaching. I'm Lord. And rightly, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, read it with me, you should also wash one another's feet. I don't mind washing people's feet. They ring me up and say their marriage is a mess, I'll come wash their feet. They ring me up and they say they need discipleship, I'll come wash their feet. 
I had one lady, though, I came to, I came to see them. There'd been a, 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 an affair, and it'd been really messy. And we sat down, and she said to me, um, the pastoral care in this church is terrible. I was like, whoa. And I didn't know what to say, and I said, stop. I said, we're not here because the pastoral care in this church is terrible, because I haven't washed your feet this week. I said, we're here because your husband's had an affair. So I said, we're going to have a cup of tea. I'm going to reboot this conversation. I'm going to do it properly. Because the reality is, your leaders are not there to hold your hand, wipe your bottom, sort you out. They will wash your feet in those moments. But actually, we read it, we are to wash one another's feet. She needed to be in community. He needed to be in community. Then he might not have committed, had an affair. He might not have fallen into sin because actually the church should care for one another. It's not that we don't care. You're shocked that I said that, aren't you? I can tell some of you are shocked by that. You think, how dare you? It's, it's his job, isn't it? No, it's our job. Seven, gospel leaders and followers live with an eternal perspective. Paul says in 24... I consider my life worth nothing to me that I may finish my course and complete the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If you want to be a leader in God's church, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to hold your life a little more lightly. Believe me, it goes like a flash. I had a nice conversation over breakfast with my host, lovely guy. And he was saying, you know, his business, it was difficult during the last few years. And he said it made him realize that that wasn't the most important thing in his life. That there was more going on. That that life was nothing compared to following Jesus. And we need to live with that perspective, don't we? We need to live with that sense of what is our life really about? What really, really matters? Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We think, oh, he's a, he's a crazy nutcase. But actually saying, no, I consider my life nothing compared to following him, doing his thing. Art Crack says this, we may believe in eternity, but to what extent have we actually agreed with the world that eternity is not relevant until this after this life? Eternity is not merely a time frame that is endless. It's profoundly and foremostly a quantitative thing that's available now. When we begin to see our moments set in the context of eternity, we will bring, those, we'll bring to those moments a momentousness that we, they would not have otherwise had. So when you say, I'm parenting, that is important. It's really important. But actually, teaching your kids to follow Jesus is the most important thing. You know, you can earn lots of money and you can do lots of things, but actually you can invest yourself into the church of God as a leader and actually that counts for eternity. You know, it should be in the Bible, shouldn't it, from Gladiator? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Thank you, it's a family meme. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Paul's living for eternity, living with an eternal perspective. Meaning and purpose and significance are found in the marketplace, but they are deeply, deeply, deeply found in serving the church of God. Eight, nearly done. Gospel leaders and followers will face trials and opposition. 
Paul talks about his trials and his, his opposition. In fact, I haven't got time to read it, but he, he lists it in, in, in 2 Corinthians. He said, I'm a, I'm, I was at danger. I was at danger in the countryside and danger in the city. I was danger from my friends and danger from the Jews. I was danger, I was danger here and danger there. My life was this and danger, and I felt danger everywhere. And there was this incredible sense where Paul faced persecutions. He's saying, he didn't think, oh, if I go to do what God has called me in Jerusalem, I'm going to face persecutions. That means no. He said, I'm going anyway. If you live a Christian life, you are going to face persecutions. Uh, Peter, 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes amongst you to test, test you as if something unusual is happening. Instead, rejoice that you share the sufferings of the Messiah, that you may also rejoice with great joy in his great revelation. The reality is, we are going to suffer. It's not just always easy. We live in a broken world, and gospel leaders understand that they're going to face difficult times, and they're not going to lose their faith for it. They're not going to go down the tubes when something bad happens. I remember my father-in-law said to me, We'd done a membership course, and one guy had written all over his membership course book, rubbish, but don't believe in that. What's he talking about? He'd written it all over the book. Rob Horn, you remember? Read it all over the book. And then he left the book. So I'm clearing up afterwards. That was a great membership course. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I find this book, and I'm like, reading it, I'm like, absolutely in bits. I thought, oh, this is awful. I'm so terrible. I'm useless. What am I like? What am I like? So I rang Naomi's dad up. He'd been a pastor for 42 years. And he says, Howard, did they persecute Jesus? Did they mock Jesus and make fun of Jesus? Are you, like, are you perfect? So you're going to get mocked and rejected and, and, and hassle is going to happen. And I've had people say stuff to me and do stuff to me and, and give me incredible hard times. And I don't think, right, I'm done. I think, no, that's what happens. That's part of the Christian life. And that you're going to face opposition. Tim Keller again says, suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's not the only, it's not the only way. Uh, sorry, suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like us and redeemed us, but it's one of the main ways we become like him. And to experience his redemption. That means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purposeful fullness and usefulness. I remember I had the one of the most horrible times in leadership. I found a piece of paper on a photocopier that basically said I was going to be moved on from this church staff. I don't know why it ended up left on the glass and I, I took it off the glass and I thought, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I, I talked to the guy and, I, and he said, I'm so sorry. We were just working through some things and I was absolutely in pieces. And I just was being crushed. And then this, I was at a a meeting, probably not this size, a leaders' meeting. This guy picked me out and said, I see huge rejection over you. And he said, It can define you or transform you. And I thought, I'm going to be transformed by it. So I'm not bitter. I love this guy. I hugged him the other week, you know, and they, one of the hardest times that happened in my life. You are going to face hard times, and how you respond to it will make you. Don't step into leadership for comfy, sunlit uplands. Step into leadership because the church of God is worth it and you're prepared to face the trials. Amen? Last two. Uh, gospel leaders and followers have persevered to finish the course. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. You know, it's okay to serve for a season 
It's okay to say, I'm going to serve in this church for a little bit and then not serve in this, and I'm going to do this thing and then not, not do this thing. It's okay to do that. It's not wrong to say, but it's not a life sentence in that sense. But the reality is following Jesus is a lifelong call. Amen. You've got to keep on going. The Christian life is how I'm going to keep on going. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing, because he's got an eternal perspective, that I may finish my course. It's so tragic that so many leaders fail. They don't make it to the end. It's so tragic that so many Christians fail and don't make it to the end. We're supposed to keep going to the end. We're supposed to keep believing to the end. I'm going to keep going until you say amen. We're going to keep persevering to the end. And even though it might be difficult, oh, I'm not persevering because that happened to me. That leader, I asked for a cup of tea and he never gave me one. I'm leaving the church. Or something huge like my marriage was breaking up and I feel like the church didn't love me and pastor me. Praise God that when I said, that's not the problem here, I may not be perfect. She made a cup of tea and started again and I gave her a hug and she said, thank you. I know you're not perfect, you've done the best you can. She didn't let that mean she's gone from church. She kept on going. So many leaders burn out. Why? Because they think they're God. They think that they've got to do it all. Some, I, I feel guilty all the time. Probably not helpful to say this, but I feel guilty all the time that I'm not loving the church enough because the church expects me to love them and love them and love them. And I think, I just can't do it. That person, that guy that phones me up, you know, who's, who's got cerebral palsy and he wants to talk to me again. And, and I, I don't want to talk to him. And I feel guilty. And then, hello, Alex. And you just keep going. And I, but, but there's times I think, I just can't do that. I just can't do that. I, 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 I'm not ultimately Jesus. Look to him. It's him. We, we, we're all looking to him. Look to him. You know, don't look to just this person or that person. Look to him. Hebrews 12.1. Nearly done. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's all the ones who've persevered to the end, that have kept on going, let's throw off everything or the sin, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what I've been talking about. And let us run, say it, with perseverance, the race marked out for you, for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Paul says, doesn't he, at the end, he says, he writes to Timothy, the same guy's in the crowd, he says, I've kept the faith. I've run the race. For me now awaits a crown of life. That's what we want, isn't it? You want to enter glory, not, well, thanks for popping along to Grace Church a couple of weeks. You want to enter, well done, good and faithful, say it, servant. Let's not grow away in a new heart. Last one. Gospel leaders and church followers, band, I don't know what we do next, so get ready, we're going to go. Gospel leaders and church followers are loved, are loved and are loved by the church of God. Paul says to the elders of the church, but he says it to all of us, be shepherds of the church of God that he bought with his own blood. There's no institution like the local church. Jesus gave himself for her. 
He absolutely loves her. We're his beautiful bride. Jesus loves the church. And so should we. We should love her. Not like, oh, she's, you know, that was no good and that was no good. And why didn't they get that sorted? And we should love the church. Give ourselves for her. That's what you're called to do. Leader or not leader. Some of you are called to stand out of this crowd. I'm not going to call you. To stand out of this crowd and say, I love the church. I'm going to give, say no to all these options because I'm going to give myself wholeheartedly to her. Where's the new generation of leaders? Where's the 20-somethings who say, I'm going to run for Jesus? Shouldn't be 63-year-old guys like me. Jesus loved the church, didn't he? And gave himself for her. But this is so wonderful. And this is just almost, if you want to capture it, and I don't know why it got missed at the end. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down. I mean, if it was my church, I'd get you to do it, but we won't. He knelt down with all of them and prayed. And it was almost like, it says, they wept and embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most from his statement, that he'd never see him again. Imagine being in a church like that. Imagine being in a church like that that's had opposition and difficulty and challenges and all sorts of stuff. And, when you, and, and you don't just say, ah, oh, I've changed the church. I'm off to another one. You're allowed to do that, by the way. This is no good go. But you want to be in that huddle, don't you? Grace Church is this huddle. Uh, it's actually been this, this first stage. You're almost in the first stage of a family. The first stage of a family where it's this wonderful huddle and you feel like I've shared life together and we've wept on Zach and others. Have, we've wept together and, and, and shared life together and we felt this togetherness. We think, wow, you're my brothers and sisters. And those brothers and sisters say, we need to say, we're going to go again. We're going to go, is this enough for London? I'm not saying there's no other church in London. There's loads of great churches. Is this church big enough for this place? Oh, come on. Like, it's a rhetorical question. I'll ask you again. Is this church big enough for this place? No. Oh, you'd, you, you, you don't, some of you think, I don't like his style now. <laughs> I'm glad he's not the pastor. I need someone far more loving and far more caring. But guys... Hear my heart. This church, is, this church needs all these people. They need more church leaders. They need more small group leaders. They need more people who can preach and lead congregations and do it across London. Yeah? If you think this is the end, no. Guys, welcome. The curtain's going up. I think Ruth, uh, Ruth Haslam's had a prophetic. The curtain's going up on Act 2. And he's saying, who's going to go for us? And whom should we send? And you're going to say, here am I. Send me.